Hey there, and welcome to the Pseudo Show, brought to you by the Destination Linux Network. Today, we'll look past all the marketing jargon and to the heart of infrastructure architecture. We'll cover multi-cloud, hybrid cloud, and even stop by the productivity corner. All that and more on this episode of the Pseudo Show. Welcome to the Pseudo Show, your home for all things enterprise open source. I'm Eric, the IT guy, and joining me every episode is my decaffeinated co-host, Brandon Johnson. How are you doing today, buddy? Well, this afternoon's decaffeinated, but doing well. <laughs> so we realize that your time is incredibly valuable, and we wanted to test something out over the next couple of episodes. We're going to skip over the usual what have we been up to section and get right into the content. If you like the more streamlined introduction, please let us know. The show notes will include all the different ways to get in touch with us. Don't worry, though. We'll provide updates on our home labs and our projects and segments of future shows when we reach major milestones. With that said, let's dive in. First up on today's show is Bitwarden, the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and business organizations to store, share, and sync sensitive data. Bitwarden also is a sponsor of the Pseudo Show and the entire Destination Linux network. Head on over to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started for free or sign up for the premium edition for just $10 a year. Every week, it seems like there are more and more breaches and uh, companies using passwords on their update infrastructure with the company name with one, two, three at the end. That is why it is so important to have a password manager you can trust. I mean, just a couple weeks ago, Ubiquity announced they detected strange activity in their cloud infrastructure and urged everyone to change their password and ensure they have two-factor authentication enabled. It couldn't be any easier with Bitwarden. Go into your password item, generate a new password, and copy the password into the affected website. And you can even use two-factor authentication if you're using premium. We have an awesome sponsor in Bitwarden, and you all get a free PSA all in one segment. Head on over to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started today. And a sincere thank you to Bitwarden for sponsoring the Pseudo Show. When you hear Eric and I talk about hybrid cloud or multi-cloud in the context of Red Hat, our day jobs, we're generally talking about utilizing a platform such as Red Hat OpenShift that runs on-prem and in one or more public clouds for consistent operations and developer experience. The goal of hybrid cloud is application mobility. We'd love to get to data mobility, but data mobility in public cloud is a lot like Hotel California. You can check in, but you can't check out, at least with not spending thousands or more to get out. In next week's episode, we have a special guest joining us, and I think you'll all really enjoy what he has to say. But before that interview, we wanted to take a moment and just lay a foundation. Terminology has gotten more confusing than than ever. So Brandon, let's... I want to take this first segment and let's just define a few terms and, and concepts that, that people are likely to hear. You'll probably, when when people are talking about cloud, hybrid cloud, multi-cloud, insert cloudy term here, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to hear uh, on-premise, cloud-native, multi-cloud, hybrid cloud, and more recently, edge or edge cloud. So let's start with on-premise. So I think this is pretty self-explanatory. This is generally your legacy virtualization or bare metal systems that are residing in data centers that your organization runs. So this is 
uh, you know, the way everything was ran and barely eight years ago, where maybe even less than that, depending on your industry, but on-premise is uh, very much the alive and well in many enterprises and revenue generating systems run on-premise. Not, not all revenue generating systems are running in the cloud. It's been kind of interesting to watch the the industry shift, even even in my career, because we started out with these huge distributed systems, and then everything kind of compiled in on itself. And now we're moving back out into into this huge distributed system. And you know, tomorrow tomorrow Edge may be may be a dead technology, and we may have something completely different. But on prem is is a reality of of the industry. Most most larger companies still have a data center space somewhere, even if they've offset some of that cost by by hiring a colo or going into basically renting uh, basically renting rack space uh, and throwing hardware there. But most of your larger companies still have a physical footprint somewhere. One of the biggest reasons for that is just because. The, the sheer size of storage and, and storage costs in, uh, in cloud technology just isn't there. Yeah. So we've got on-prem, which is the physical data center, whether that's in the basement of your corporate office or at a colo data center. But the next kind of the opposite side of the spectrum from that is cloud native. Yeah. So whenever we hear about cloud native, you know, uh, there, there are kind of two mindsets here. It's just is my uh, application running on a cloud, a public cloud or private cloud? So whether that's an OpenStack or AWS or DigitalOcean. And usually when is it just running there, you've taken your a- application that was running on your legacy virtualization or bare metal system on-prem, and you essentially did a lift and shift. You basically just redeployed it on the public cloud and, and you didn't really change anything. Another uh, uh, thought process on cloud native, it, and this is what I actually consider to be the true definition. We've talked about this whole idea behind cloud native is that you have pieces of your application. You break your application into smaller pieces and they're independently scalable and and they don't impact each other. So you can have a piece of your application uh, go down without impacting the other applications. Grant uh, the other pieces of the application. Granted, it would could take still take down the application, but like if you're thinking of like uh, I have a web application with a database, but that database could be used for other things like in data analytics. But your so your data analytics pieces may not be going down, but you're obviously that one of some of the main bits of your uh, app, like if it's a web-facing application, would could be down. But the part of the goal with cloud native is that it can be quickly brought back up with minimal downtime, if no no downtime at all. Well, and you you mentioned a really good point, just kind of in passing. But I I wanted to draw a little bit of attention to it. Is is the term cloud uh, was kind of stolen, almost assimilated by some of these large uh, cloud providers like like AWS and and, um, and and GCP to think that all clouds are public clouds. That's that's not entirely true. Because OpenStack was one of the original solutions to fix this this growing interest in in cloud and and co-located data centers to introduce an application that allows you to basically orchestrate your infrastructure. That's where OpenStack came in. I, I think OpenStack uh, 
could have become so much more, but these these public cloud providers kind of came in and made the jo- made that process so easy to just spin up a, a server. Or, or nowadays, we even have public clouds that offer everything down to the container level, and they they manage the entire stack right up mm-hmm. until your container itself. It's it's hard to compete with that with something as complex and as resource demanding as OpenStack is. Well, OpenStack, despite that, is still the in terms of open source platforms, the de facto standard for private cloud. And I also look at OpenStack as not just a private cloud solution. I look at it as a framework for building a modern data center. I mean, everything you need to build a private cloud, which is essentially in the case of is what you would go and get different pieces from different vendors. Uh, when I first started my career, OpenStack provides all those bits and pieces which help you build a private cloud. Or you could even, are you even working with customers who are using OpenStack? They're using uh, OpenStack to build public clouds. So their customers can then take advantage of their valuable real estate that they have all over the country. You know, what, one of the things that gets you know, talked about with clouds, and I brought brought this up right in the, in the intro, is cloud lock-in. I'm a big believer in trying to distribute your workloads across multiple clouds. Getting locked in into AWS or GCP, you, you get you can get stuck there pretty easily, uh, especially if you have a lot of data that resides on those clouds. It's very expensive to move your data out, and it's just as expensive to distribute your data across multiple clouds. So there's got to be, you know, there's some ways that I've thought about on this, like whether that's keeping your data on premise or figuring out a way of using some third-party services like uh, third-party object storage services that have much lower cost of, make it a lot easier to move move data between clouds uh, so you can have better distributed applications. So Brandon, have you heard of the good news? Have you heard the 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 good news that is edge computing? Because that's that's pretty much what you're describing here. You're talking about designing an application with with a home data center in mind, maintaining your infrastructure as it has been, and basically building out from there. What you're talking about is basically edge computing, where you have a central processing space, and then whether it's through a series of remote data centers, colos, or maybe even some colos have even started to offer edge plans where you can basically spin up an instance or a single server for your application and have it spread out across multiple data centers. You basically want to be able to do as much processing as possible wherever your endpoint may be. I mean, look at telecommunications with with this move to 5G. A lot of that is trying to bring sports statistics right there to in the stadium. It's it's trying to bring uh, smarter uh, stoplights uh, based on traffic flow. To do that, you need to have a central application running somewhere in a data center, but you have all these endpoints scattered across, could be miles, potentially hundreds of thousands of endpoints that are trying to do calculations using using your application. So by having the ability to scale your processing as close to the customer as possible, it really increases the the performance of your application while still maintaining that kind of that storage and analytics backend at your at your home data center. So you're not spending a fortune paying for all that to be stored in the cloud. Yeah, well, it's not necessarily stored in your data center. These could be edge sites provided by a public cloud provider. And all essentially edge means 
to narrow narrow it down even more is just let, let's take a use case say i i want to play a game i want the lowest latency between myself and the server someone comes out with some really wicked cool game i buy it it's a big multiplayer game it went every single time i spin up that game uh what if they had the ability to spin up a server that was only five to ten milliseconds away from my house from a uh, network perspective that is the end goal of edge is to make the experience for the end customer to be almost as good as running on their local network that is a that like whether that's a gaming use case, whether that's um, a data analytics use case, like using pulling data, like if you're a, a telco, pulling data right off of your cell phone towers. The concept behind Edge and the has such unlimited potential in terms of changing the way we do computing. Like Eric said, we've gone from having these huge monolithic systems like mainframes to distributed systems uh smaller x86 now we're and then we kind of went back to a monolithic system with uh with the cloud uh you know everything's in the cloud everything's in these in in these cloud data centers now we're taking it back it's all going back out uh still you know could be managed by a cloud provider but in some cases it's uh taking uh maybe even taking the cloud providers resources bringing them right into your data center whether that's like a AWS outpost IBM cloud satellite Google Anthos there's tons and tons of awesome use cases out there not just for enterprise use case like i said even for consumer well and all the major players can see this future coming because everywhere you go, you can find uh, third-party hosted uh, Kubernetes or third-party hosted OpenShift. So where all you really need is a container file. You send them container file and, and an API token to to talk back to your home application, and you can spin up processing anywhere where, where there's a, a, a data center. In fact, um, and this gets into our next point, now instead of being locked into a single cloud provider, now you can use basically all of them. So if AWS is is lacking coverage in a particular area, you can go and look at Azure and see if see where their data centers are located to hit a, a particular pocket of, of people. And that brings us to another term that you'll hear a lot of times, and that's multi-cloud. Sometimes uh, multi-cloud and hybrid cloud could mean one and the same. But I prefer to break, it, break up the definition just because multi-cloud, from my point of view, it's you're running workloads on different clouds, and generally they're just managed independently. So you're managing Azure, you're managing AWS, you're managing DigitalOcean, just using the native tools, or you're uh, centrally managing them using a tool like Mist or Manage IQ, but you're still using only the native ser- services on those respective platforms. So it's uh, and everything is still very separate. That's the way I kind of view multi-cloud. You know, there's hybrid cloud. And it kind of like with hi- with hybrid cloud, I think kind of takes multi-cloud up to the next level. Where we are today, I'll t- actually, first let's talk about, uh, you know, kind of the nirvana goal of hybrid cloud. And that's what I was talking about earlier. Pure data and application portability across both public and private cloud. That is the goal of hybrid cloud is being able to have that portability. To, uh, that's not where it's at. 
uh, today, at least not yet. And I, I, it's going to take a while to get to that. But this is what it actually is today, is to at least have application portability between clouds. So when I think of hybrid, I, I really do think of, uh, of the current strategy at, at my employer, at Red Hat. And I think of hybrid, it's having a common service that is identical across your, your public cloud footprints and your private cloud footprints. So if you're running OpenStack or a VMware private cloud on-premise, and you're running, say, you have a AWS and uh, Azure, well, the best way of unifying those is not with a cloud management platform. It's uh, having a common way for developers to deploy software onto those clouds. And that could be OKD, which is the upstream of Red Hat OpenShift or it's OpenShift, or it could even be uh, other Kubernetes platforms such as Rancher. So I think no matter how you look at it, the, the options are becoming endless and containers have brought a new level of, of architecture to, to what we can provide. Instead of looking at having to put a server, a physical hardware server in multiple data centers across the across the country or across the globe. Now you can just look at having basically a regional data center that may or may not be your own physical hardware. Instead, you're looking at running a container or having having the ability, at least the ability to spin up one or multiple containers anywhere on the globe. Go back five or six years even, uh, back to the days when I was really heavy in systems administration. One of the most painful things to do as a systems administrator was you have your production environment, you have your home data center, and then you have potentially other sites or everybody's favorite, the DR site that always got the the step down in hardware. No one wanted to spend as much money on it because how could how could a disaster ever happen to me? You you had to you had these multiple different environments you had to maintain. They were never identical. There was no way to manage them from a single from a single pane. So it, it was it was constantly this whole this this battle between the main site and the remote sites and the DR site. Now you don't have that problem. You have one central site that hosts your your data warehouse, the the bulk of your storage, your backups, and your orchestrator. Then you can scale to Kubernetes clusters or OpenShift clusters anywhere in the globe, or even like I said, just down to the container level. It, it's really it's really driving forward what technology can do and and how quickly we can do it. Another another thing to think about too is um, using like spot instances on AWS, so you can do real time cost optimization on uh, AWS spot instances, or or if it's cheaper to bring it on prem, bring it on prem. There's unlimited use cases there. Well, it's it's really cool because I, I I think in the last year or two, I mean Kubernetes just took the world by storm. I, I've never seen a piece of technology more quickly change the way an entire generation of technologists think. And I, I think with, with edge computing and with technologies like, like 5G and some of these, some of these changes in the, in the industry that we're seeing, I finally think we're seeing the, the true potential of what the shift to DevOps and what the shift to Kubernetes can bring. I, I think we're finally starting to see what this next generation of technology can look like. And I offer as proof just the number of IoT devices and smart devices that are entering the network every single day, whether they have a public IP address or whether you deploy them on your home network. I, I think we're really starting to see kind of the next generation of processing and, and capability that our technology can bring us. It's really exciting. 
Oh, it is. And, you know, like we're probably not going to see like a Kubernetes orchestrated container on a light switch, but. <laughs> I, sh- I sure hope not. <laughs> <laughs> But we we do have we do have the ability to containerize a, a home basically a home orchestrator. I mean, you take Home Assistant, put it in a container, then you can basically manage your house with a Kubernetes uh, pod. I mean, it's just that simple. And it, it is. And so hopefully, it doesn't get down to the light switch level. But <laughs> I wouldn't mind a single container running my house. <laughs> You're just getting started in the space, and you want to be on that leading edge. If you want to be more the network side. We've, we've talked about development. We've talked about operations. But if you really want to be on the networking side and you want to be on that leading edge, edge computing and 5G is really where it's going to be, I think, for, for many years to come. It is. And P- anyone who wants to understand edge, go look at the technology that's going into it. Go to okd.io. Go look at Fedora Core OS and Fedora IoT. That's that, Those are great places to go look or get a developer RHEL subscription and take a look at RHEL for Edge. There's a lot of really, really, really cool things coming. This week's Productivity Corner is brought to you by our favorite cloud provider, DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. You can get started on DigitalOcean for free with a $100 credit by going to do.co slash DLN. DigitalOcean recently announced the release of BYOCI. That was a bit of a mouthful. Rolls right off the tongue, doesn't it? Yeah. Bring your own container image. This builds on their recent release of the app platform, their in-house Kubernetes environment. Now you can create a container, publish it to the DigitalOcean Container Registry. I think they're calling it Docker. Does it look like Docker to you? D-O-C-R. Sounds like Docker to me. (laughs) From there, it's just a few clicks to deploy it to the app platform. The DOCR even provides a starter plan for free. Take the free starter plan and your $100 credit and build something really cool. And if you do, tweet Pseudo Show Podcast and let us know what you're working on. And thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Pseudo Show and the entire Destination Linux network. For the past few years, when people ask me what I do for a living, I tell them to picture the introduction to the Brady Bunch. Remember when all the kids and their parents were being introduced and they appear in their own little box on the screen? That's kind of my life. I, I think Brandon would uh, would agree. It's But it's a reality of today's climate. So for today's Productivity Corner, we wanted to take a couple of minutes to share some tips that we found to make for better remote meetings, or at least make them tolerable. What's the first one on your list, Brandon? For me, uh, big, something that's really important for me, especially when I'm doing remote meetings is one, you, especially if I'm going to be doing a whiteboard session is I want everyone's camera to be on. The reason why I think that is I want to be able to get real-time feedback. I can't get that by when I don't see people's faces. And I know what they're paying attention to, so that helps as well. You know, one of the most painful experiences I had when I was getting started in the sales space, I can remember giving a presentation to a room of probably eight to 10 people. And I went through this 20 minute demonstration of, I, I think it was GitLab at the time, but I, I went through this 20 minute presentation and, and I'm usually very, very high energy, very engaging with people. I, I like to, I like to throw some jokes and every chance I get, I love to throw my sales guy under the bus because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the tech guy. He's the guy there trying to get at their wallet. So I like to, I like to kind of keep things loose. I'm, I'm a technologist, they're technologists, but I will not forget telling a joke, nailing the punchline, which if you've listened to our outtakes, you know, doesn't always happen, <laughs> but nailing the punchline and pausing for, for a laugh, 
nothing. They didn't have their camera on. The the conference phone was muted. So I'm basically talking to the wall behind my webcam. It was miserable. It was painful. Yeah. And, uh, you know, in, so, in some cases, you know, most of the time I want everyone on mute. Right. But like sometimes it's OK to not be on mute, especially unless you're unless you uh, are one of those people that uh, get up and with your headset on and go to the bathroom. But <laughs> I want I, I do want you on mute. Otherwise, you know, pu- push to talk You know, on on some systems, uh, on some systems, it's just space bar and others. It's it's uh, some other hotkey. But unmute, if especially if it's a very interactive meeting. I mean, yeah, you could end up talking over people, but you know what? Sometimes that's okay. Yeah, I, I tend to use my mute button as my push to talk just because, I mean, I'll even unmute to laugh at, at, at a joke somebody shared just because I've been in that position. So another trick that I've picked up is some calendars have this built in already. It's called speedy meetings. It takes a, it takes a half hour long meeting and sets it to 25 minutes, or it takes an hour long meeting and sets it to 50 minutes. Now you may think that, oh my gosh, what? how am I going to possibly squeeze all this content into 50 minutes? But if you think about it, the first five to 10 minutes of every meeting is spent, can you hear me now? Can you see my screen? Does my camera look okay? And then once you get in, once you get past that, then it's usually the actual meeting content. I would argue that by moving and i've i've tried so many times to to make this my norm but if you if you move to the speedy meetings that gives you 5 or 10 minutes between meetings to kind of get reset to go and take a bio break to to fill up your tea to basically get set for the next meeting there's nothing more painful than well what do i have at noon a meeting what do i have at 12:30 a meeting what do i have at 1 o'clock a meeting and then your 12:30 god forbid you guys get talking in an actual conversation and it's 104 and you're showing up to the next meeting running late so speedy meetings, very minor change, but it changes how your brain reacts to the event. Yeah, I, I've tried this and it it works because it's like I scheduled this. This meeting was scheduled for 25 minutes. I got a I got a roll. Right. And people actually because people and people appreciate it. Time is valuable. It's the one thing you can't get back. You cannot get back your time. So kind of on that along that same line is I've I've picked up this trick and I've actually noticed not many people pay attention to this. But when you schedule a meeting, whether it's one on one or multiple people, look at the calendar availability. So before I explain that, let me take it from the other direction, too. If you have a morning of back to back to back to back meetings, like most of us seem to schedule some time for yourself, schedule some time where you say, I'm not going to be at my desk. This is my lunch hour or this is. This is my 30 minutes to go out and go for a walk and respect those times. There's nothing worse than than showing up to work on a Tuesday and looking at your schedule and going, oh, all those things I wanted to do today, I don't have time for because someone's gone in and blocked nine hours straight with all these different meetings. So block out time when you're not at your desk, block out time to go to the doctor, to, to go to the gym. And then when you're scheduling those meetings, make sure to respect those blocks of time. So people are pretty respective of my time overall, like especially if uh, if it's blocked out. I actually went so before COVID, I I traveled quite a lot. I'd end up spending Mondays on the plane. I'd spend about three hours, maybe more, on a plane. That's excluding airport time, right? And if especially if I was going cross country, three or more hours. But what I finally decided to do. I will be getting back on planes. I will be getting that time back uh, that I have on planes. So I decided to block off Monday and Friday, about three hours on both days, bookended. That is my time to 
catch up on email, start, write, write up uh, some data for reference architectures, whatever it is I was doing on planes that I haven't had time to recently, that is now my time. It, I, I In my calendar, I labeled it as flight time. And that, and it's a Monday morning and Friday afternoon. So I get, have these great blocks of time for my, or essentially for me, it, 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 it's not, I do it for my sanity. It's not, so it is for me, but it also helps get other things done that I was normally getting done before COVID. Nice. So what kind of hardware would you recommend? Oh, well, I'm going to get crucified uh, on this one, <laughs> but I don't care. I do a lot of whiteboard sessions and as anyone who's listened to the show or has followed me at all knows I am obsessed with finding the perfect tablet that will run Linux. And I'm going <laughs> to tell you this right now. There are a few, but to do whiteboard sessions on a tablet running Linux is a nightmare right now. It is not a great experience. Whiteboard sessions, I have an iPad with an Apple Pencil. It was worth every penny. And it has, from my perspective, it has paid for itself. Well, frankly, it's made me money. So <laughs> um, pair it with a MacBook Pro. It's, it works very well for if you if you need to do it. If you pull up the whiteboards, uh, like many of the apps, uh, the meeting apps have a whiteboard, a whiteboard type thing like Zoom does. I know Blue Jeans does. Meet doesn't quite have one. They, they have a system called Jamboard that seems to work all right too. So I I went out and I bought an Apple Pencil and I felt dirty doing it but and I I saw a few people doing doing presentations for for a training class I took I saw people doing presentations on on YouTube videos the integration with with the slideshow or with the PDF docs or with the with the console the, just being able to say hey look at this line and being able to circle it and say this line right here I mean it was just it brings you so much closer it and just being able to try Try and explain the concept in your mind. Something like edge computing, or or what is a how is a container built? You know, things like that are difficult to explain. It's even more difficult to explain over an over an audible medium. But just being able to pull up a whiteboard that that you carry around in your backpack and just draw the boxes, draw the lines. And just say these are the different layers of of a container. These are these are the different architectures of of edge computing, and just being able to draw it up right there, it's it's so valuable to to being able to communicate concepts that are very complex and nearly impossible to visualize from just an audible medium. So the other thing I went out and bought myself, I I know I, I'm kind of spoiling myself here, but I'm kind of accepting the fact that this is our future for the time being. Is I, I'm looking at a Logitech uh, webcam that has a wide angle lens on it. My current office space is a little condensed. I feel like I'm right up on my webcam. So if, if anybody puts me on a large screen, then there's just this giant floating head. And so with a wide angle webcam, it actually can pull back. I can set it in the exact same place, but it you can pull that that angle back so you see more of your more of the person's body, more of the space around them, and it really helps, especially especially for someone like me who can't typically do meetings sitting sitting down, especially if I'm presenting. I'm too animated. I talk with my hands. Man, do I miss talking at conferences because I had an entire stage that I could walk around. I'm a very animated speaker. And so by having a, a wide angle webcam, I'll be able to do that again. And I'll, it'll be able to, to show in meetings and in, in some of the video content that I'll be producing for both work and, and for pseudo show. Eric, I know you've been doing some really great content 
what are what what have you done from a to present that content, you know, from a software perspective, like uh, you've kind of taken it to the next level there. So one of the standards of video recording is OBS. Everybody knows it. Everybody uses it. It's it's a great cross-platform tool, but there's actually a plugin for OBS that makes it even better. I'm really excited to, to install it and try it out. Uh, because OBS Virtual Cam, the name of the plugin is Virtual Cam, allows you to pre-build your camera, your slides, effects, um, maybe like lower thirds, like if you have a, a title a title screen or something. You can still do all of that within OBS, but what Virtual Cam does is that it makes a logical device, uh, a logical video device on your computer that then your virtual meeting platforms, whether that's Zoom or BlueJeans or, or Google Meet, can see that virtual device. So you Basically, instead of just seeing someone's face and then them sharing your screen, your camera shot, as far as someone on Zoom is concerned, just basically becomes whatever OBS is presenting. I don't need to remember where the where the share my screen button is on all these different platforms. All I do is just set them up to look at the OBS virtual device and I can I can put in animations. I can have I can have my slides right next to me while I'm talking. It's so cool. And I'm really excited to get some some of the content I have in mind published using virtual cam just because I think it'll make the production time so much easier. And it's like you said, it's kind of that next level of virtual presentations. That's awesome. I can't wait to see some of the stuff you do with that. I mean, I'm going to start looking at that my, uh, myself. Also, from a software perspective, like you mentioned a webcam, uh, actually OBS has a plugin. I don't know if it works on Linux. I, I need to go look into it. But there's an app for the iPhone. I'm sure there's an app for Android that allows you to take the video from the camera and turn on the app on your phone and it will... Uh, use your phone's camera as your webcam. Webcams in general are pretty terrible. They're not that great devices, right? They're, I mean, there are obviously exceptions. Like the Logitech Brio camera cam is a 4K camera. It's a fantastic camera. You know, you don't. Some people don't want to spend two hundred dollars. You know, you've already spent a thousand dollars on a phone that has a really nice camera. Why not use it, right? So we'll we'll definitely have some links to some of the hardware and some of the software that that we've been talking about and and as always we we put a lot of time and thought into uh into the show notes. We want it to be kind of an extension of the episode. So if there's blogs or products or that that we mentioned during the show that that would be beneficial to to kind of extending the conversation. Uh, with that being said, thank you all so much for joining us today. As always, your feedback is welcome. Head on over to sudo.show/discuss. And if you'd like more of Brandon and I, you can find it over at pseudo.show and on social media at pseudoshowpodcast. Head on over to pseudo.show slash swag, where we're offering the brand new pseudo show hoodie. Actually, funny enough, Brandon and I are wearing ours today as we're recording. You can catch more awesome content over at our network partners, destinationlinux.network. Brandon, anywhere else you'd like to send folks? You can follow me on Twitter at dbrandonjohnson or my website, open-tech.net, and future blog posts at frontpagelinux. And you can follow me at ITGuyEric or on ITGuyEric.com. Remember, the Pseudo Show is your place for all things enterprise open source. Until next time. And a sincere thank you to Bit... To bit <laughs> Would you like to play a game? I don't know, Mr. Hal. But anyway... <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it's uh, the smell of the marker... <laughs> <laughs> We have an awesome sponsor. <laughs> I lied. I'm going to laugh. All right. <laughs>
I'm, I'm taking my microphone and going home. 